following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So what is the relationship between law and grace? And how does this work out practically in our lives? Um, he starts off by asking the simple question, uh, are we free to sin because we're no longer under law, but under grace? And uh, to start with, he, he makes it very clear that, that we are not under law anymore. And this is really important, and we're going to look at this next, next, this week and even more next week, that we are actually free from the law. And to trace how Paul got here, we need to backtrack and just kind of run through the trail of argument that he's given through the book of Romans. Um, and here's the key verses. He says, first of all, that no one can keep the requirements of the law. He says, if you're trying to get saved on the basis of keeping the commandments, you're in serious trouble. And he says in Romans 3.20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So he says, if you're trying to live by being a good person, conforming to the law, you can't do it. And you fall under its judgment. He goes on to say that God has made another way. Uh, in, in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says, Now God has shown us a way to be made right with him, him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So the gospel of grace means that God has made a way to be saved without keeping the requirements of the law. So thus, we're no longer under the law. We were made right with God by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Uh, he also says in Romans 3.28, So we were made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So when he says we're not under the law, that's what he's referring to. We are no longer under the system of law by which we earn or gain salvation. Uh, we cannot keep the requirements of the law. So God's made a different way, separate and apart from the requirements of the law. Uh, not only that, but he goes one step further. He says the law in itself, without grace, only brings judgment and wrath. Okay? So it's a good thing we're not under the law, because if we were to stand to the law, we come under judgment and condemnation. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he says this, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. In other words, grace becomes meaningless and faith becomes void. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Right? So law for us is never good. Uh, now the law in itself is good, because he says it shows us where we fail. It shows us our need for grace, and it shows us how condemned we are before God on our own. So it's good in that it brings us to that. But for our side of it, it's not real good for our health. Okay, It's good for God. It's not good for our health. It brings condemnation and judgment, always. So he says, finally, in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, he talks about its function. It says the law was given, the job of the law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. 
but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. All right, so, so Paul has been laying out this argument to say we're justified, we're made right with God by his grace as a free gift. And law can have no part of that. Uh, if we are in any way under law, we fall under its judgment and condemnation. Uh, so, so here's the rule. Here's the deal. There's the Ten Commandments. If we live under the law and we're trying to in any way keep those Ten Commandments as a way to be made right with God, we fail in one of them, we break them all, uh, James says, and the result is condemnation and judgment and we fall under God's wrath. Right? Uh, so nobody wants to go there. It's a dead-end losing situation. But grace has made really the law obsolete. And it's done that by giving us a righteousness, a right standing with God, separate from what we do. Because our standing with God is based on what Jesus did, not what we do. On his obedience, on his perfect uh, fulfillment of the law, not on ours. So now, we're saved by grace regardless. No matter how badly we have failed or continue to fail the law, uh, we, we are not under judgment. We have no condemnation. We are cleansed and forgiven. We have right standing with God through grace. So, so it makes the law obsolete in the sense that uh, we're not under its constraints or demands anymore for salvation. And we shouldn't even try, Paul says, to keep them uh, as a standard of our walk with God. Uh, the law really is, is obsolete. Um, and he puts it most poignantly in Romans 5, 7 through 10, uh, a lot of scripture, but it's important to trace through and see where Paul's coming at when he says we are not under law, but under grace. Romans 5, 7 through 10 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. Right? So we're set free from the judgment and wrath of the law. For if while we were enemies, we were re reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, <clears throat> we shall be saved by his life. <clears throat> and salvation there means specifically be saved from the condemnation and wrath of the law. Right? We're under grace. Amen? So, you know, the good news is for me, you know, I don't have to measure up anymore. I don't have to meet God's standard of law because I failed it. And I will continue to fail. I cannot live to the perfect, complete standard of the law. So I'm no longer under it. I'm no longer compelled or obligated to keep the commands. So that all sounds good, except for we still come back to this whole problem. Well, does that really mean we can just do anything? Right? And that's the, the question that, that Paul throws out. If the law no longer serves a function in our life, and in fact, Paul's trying to argue that if you try to live under the law, and he kind of goes into this next week, we'll look at this, where if you try to go under the law, if you live your Christian life by saying, God, what do I have to do? He said it, it leads to disaster in your Christian walk. It wrecks and destroys your Christian walk. we we'll look at that more next week. But the other side of the question is, well then, 
Does that mean I can just do whatever? Does it mean I am free from any kind of moral constraint? We all kind of know the answer to that is no, but really what does it mean? Uh, what are the limits? What are the rules? Are there rules? You just said there were no rules, right? I'm so confused. Uh, are we free to sin? Uh, and, and uh, of course, we know we're not free to sin. We know there are limits. But this is how this <clears throat> question gets played out practically in my life and in the lives of a lot of us, right? It kind of goes like this. Um, you know, can't we at least enjoy some of the pleasures of the world, right? We're under grace, right? Aren't we free? Doesn't Paul say all things are lawful? So can't I just, you know, enjoy some of the fun pleasures of the world? Uh, maybe not the worst ones, but ones that are at least socially acceptable, right? Um, uh, after all, we're not supposed to be legalistic, right? So I can chuck, you know, all those petty little rules. I'll, you know, I know I'm not supposed to break the big ones, maybe. At least not all the time. Uh, but what about the little ones? And uh, it kind of works out this way. And I've heard this. I've heard people say these, and I've said it myself at times. Things like this. Uh, you know, the excuse is, well, it's just the way I am. You know, it's my personality. I'm a control freak. I can't help it. Everybody else has just got to deal with my quirkiness, right? Because I'm under grace, right? I'm under grace. So it doesn't matter. Or maybe we think like this. I have a right to comfort in a certain kind of lifestyle. Okay? My culture is not poverty. It's not where I come from. My culture is wealth and affluence. And certainly God's blessed me with all this stuff so I can enjoy it, right? Right? Well, we do, don't we? Um, you know, I have, a right to, I have a right to live better than everyone else because God's blessed me and so I'm going to enjoy it. Right? Now, I'm not saying we can't. What I'm asking, though, is where are the, where are the, where are the boundaries, Right? And we would say, well, I live in moderate affluence and comfort. Obviously, it's only a problem if you live in excessive wealth and affluence. And, of course, excessive is always people who have more than I do, right? So if I'm a millionaire, it's the billionaires who are excessively affluent, right? It's all relative, right? So where do you draw the lines? Where's the standard, right? Or maybe, maybe our logic runs something like this. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing important ministry. I've committed my life to saving the world, to bringing the gospel to the lost nations. So maybe I'm not such a good husband and father. Maybe I don't spend enough time with my family that I know I should. But, you know, God doesn't expect me to be perfect in everything. You know, uh, I, I do what I do. I can't do everything well, right? Uh, but I don't have to be legalistic about it, Right? Because I'm under grace, or maybe it goes something like this: I know I shouldn't. I know I don't really have the kind of prayer life I should. But hey, I don't need to be legalistic about it, right? Uh, I'm under grace. Uh, you can go on and on down the list, and there's ten thousand ways that we can excuse ourselves from clear instructions of Scripture. Things God has commanded us in Scripture to do, not just in the Old Testament of law, but in the New Testament. And we can say, I don't have to do those things because we're under grace. I shouldn't be legalistic about it, right? So 
what do we do with law in light of grace? Well, Paul says, are we free to uh, are we free to do whatever we want? Are we free to sin, whatever sin means now? And, and here's the question. What does sin mean apart from law, right? Uh, am I free to sin because I'm under, I'm not under law, but I'm under grace? Well, Paul says what? No way. Okay, his, my, my translation. No way. May it never be. Okay, no, we do not have that kind of freedom. That's not what it means, right? And in fact, what he says is that where before we lived under law, now the new ruling order of our life is to be obedience. Obedience, right? And so he goes on and he says this. He says, he says basically, you were made to obey. Okay? You, you were designed by God as creatures to be obedient to something. And this is how he puts it in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the principle is this. He says, look, to start with, there is really no such thing as freedom, like we would use the word freedom. The, the idea that I am, I am independent of any outside forces or control, and I'm free to decide on my own what I want to do for my own sake and benefit. Okay, that's kind of what the modern world means by the word freedom. You know, I'm free to live my life the way I want. Now, Paul says there's no such thing. He says absolutely no such thing that every one of us, at some level, obeys something. Okay, we all have a Lord and a Master. And uh, somebody who's really bright and sharp will say, well, I don't believe that. Because, you know, I could be my own boss, right? Uh, you know, I'm 15. Uh, I don't have to listen to my parents anymore. I can do my own thing. I can be my own boss. I can be the master of my own destiny. And a lot of people believe that, honestly believe that, that, uh, that that's freedom and that, that nobody's going to tell them what to do or how to live. But Paul says it's a lie. And he says the problem is that when you give yourself to something, you become its slave, and it masters you. And the truth is, uh, people in the world think they're in control of their life, and they do whatever they want, but they don't realize that they have made themselves slaves to their own selfishness and their own selfish whims. And what controls those? What's the puppet strings? You know, what, what pulls those puppet strings of our selfishness and our selfish whims? Well, Paul says, sin does. Sin is the power behind that. If you live for yourself, in the end you're not living for yourself, you are living under the dominion and control and power of sin. And the truth is you become a slave to those things. Right? So if you selfishly want something and you commit yourself to it, you give yourself an obedience to follow that line, you eventually become, actually quite quickly, you become a slave to that thing. The most simplistic, overly simplistic, uh, I'll, I'll admit, illustration of this, but it, it illustrates the point well, is the high school student who decides they're free, nobody's going to tell them what to do, they're in control of their own body, and so they're going to start smoking cigarettes because it's cool, right? Now, nobody actually starts smoking cigarettes because they like inhaling smoke. 
In fact, they've all done all kinds of research on it, and they show that it takes most high school students three to six months to get over the horrible taste of it. They do it because it's cool, because they want to project this image that I'm in control, I'm my own boss, I am independent, I am free, nobody's going to tell me what to do. And it's defying teachers, it's defying, defying adults, it's defying parents. I'm in control, right? Now, I love fast forward. That's, you know, 16, 17-year-old. Fast forward to a guy who's now 40 years old who's still smoking, right? And would give anything in the world to quit because he hates it. But he is in bondage to this habit he cannot escape from and spends hundreds of dollars, probably thousands of dollars every year on a habit that he detests and hates, right? Now does he smoke because he wants to, because he's free and independent, or because he's a slave and in bondage? He's a slave and in bondage. I have yet to meet a 50-year-old who goes, man, I just love smoking, and I'm so glad, and I would never want to quit. I've never met a person like that, right? They all want to quit. They all hate it. Well, that's true of every single sin. Okay, that's, that's a kind of graphic example, but it's true of every sin. Paul says when you give yourself to it, it becomes master over you, and you become a slave in bondage to its control and power. And so the reality is we look in the world that a lot of free, wealthy people who can do whatever they want, uh, Hugh Hefner, the Playboy, uh, hedonists, whatever, right? and you have people who are living in bondage to their own selfishness, their own wickedness, uh, the selfish, evil desires of their own heart and flesh. They are trapped by those things, and it owns them. And they cannot escape its power over their life. You see, we were made to obey something. And Paul says clearly and simply, you have two choices of who you will obey. Two choices, and that's it. There is no third option. There is no all of the above or none of the above. There's either option A or option B. Option A is sin, right? Uh, which may look like serving yourself, but in the end it's serving sin. Or you can serve obedience. And he means here obedience to God. Um, another good illustration of how this works, how uh, obedience owns you. And I like what he says here. He says, and this is where a lot of times in our Christian walk we get, we get it backwards, right? We know that when we came to Christ, we got saved, and Jesus becomes Lord and Master of our life. We're taught, we're taught that, right? And as Lord and Master of our life, we're supposed to do what he says. In fact, we're told we have to do what God says, right? But Paul, interestingly, doesn't put it that way in this passage. Notice what he says. He says, actually, the person, the thing you give yourself to in obedience, that then becomes your Lord and Master, Right? You don't, you don't serve God. You don't, Jesus is not Lord of our life. And then we have to do what he says. He says the opposite. He says, when you give yourself in obedience to something, it then becomes Lord and Master. Right? Uh, a, a fun illustration of this. How many of you have seen the movie The Terminal with Tom Hanks? Anybody? It's a great movie for people who travel internationally a lot because it's, it's the story of this guy who gets stuck uh, in an international terminal and can't get out. He can't go into the country he's trying to get into, uh, and he can't go home because his country's in a civil war, and he's trapped there. And the, Tom Hanks plays the part of this character called Mr. Savorsky. And uh, he's stuck, right? And for several months, he's stuck in the international terminal, 
And I know some of you have been there several months. You're just stuck there waiting. Can't get out, right? So it's a fun movie for us to watch. And uh, so he, he has no food. He has no way to get money. Uh, he, he's, he's really just stuck there. So he's finding creative ways to, to get food. And he decides he wants to get a job, right? So he applies at all these shops uh, in, the, in the terminal. And, of course, none of them will give him a job. So he's bored. He's hungry. He has no food. So he's living in a, a wing of the airport under construction. And so he, he has gifts and skills in this area. So he starts building stuff. And he just starts kind of doing what the workers are going to do. He just starts building and finishing the airport, working on the airport, you know. Well, one, uh, and he does this at, all, all night. One morning, the, the work crew comes in, and this foreman comes up and sees him doing this beautiful work. And he's, uh, the, the foreman is convinced that another foreman is trying to weasel in on his turf, right? And he sees the amazing work this guy's doing, uh, this Mr. Savorsky. And so he commandeers him says, you're going to work for me. You're not working for that other foreman. You're going to do this. You're going to do it for me. So it's funny because the guy couldn't get a job, but, but he goes to work. Because he goes to work, he ends up getting a boss and a paycheck, right? Well, that's kind of how it works for us. Uh, we go to work obe- obeying the things we're supposed to, and with that comes the job, the boss, and the paycheck, right? We serve something. It masters us, right? Uh, we serve sin, it masters us. We serve obedience, and God becomes our master. Um, I don't want to linger a lot on this, but let me just run through uh, what slave to sin can look like. Right? It can, it can look like a lot of things. But I think in the Christian life, here are some areas that uh, for us can be a problem. Uh, and, and I'm kind of looking at it backwards. What are the things that we end up in bondage to? Right? What is it the things in our life that oftentimes master us? Well, if they master us, it's because we have given ourselves to obey those impulses, those demands, those things in our life that says, you need to do this. Right? So I broke it down into five categories. First, emotional bondage. A lot of people are captured by emotional bondage, things like anger, bitterness, worry, fear, unforgiveness, right? We give in to those emotions all too easily and too quickly, and soon we're in bondage to those things. Uh, physical bondage, uh, I don't mean like, like chains, like in jail, but uh, the lust of the flesh, wrong desires, food, uh, Many kinds of addictions, sexual addictions, uh, you know, adrenaline addictions, alcohol addictions, drug addictions, um, health and exercise and looks. Now, I'm not saying you can't look nice or exercise or be healthy, but those things can become an addiction. Those things can be things that we give our love and devo- devotion, our obedience to wholeheartedly, and they can enslave us, right? They can capture us. They can carry power and weight over our life. Um, the, another group or area is what I would call the bondage of achievement. Okay? Giving ourselves uh, too much to, to performance, to success, to power and control, to work and ministry, to keeping constantly busy and being a workaholic. Right? Okay, those things, now, again, work's not bad. Ministry, obviously, is not bad. But can we fall into bondage to those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't keep it in right perspective. 
And we give ourselves in obedience to our job, our ministry, and not living in obedience to Christ. Right? Uh, the bondage of materialism, the need to be comfortable, to have things, to have wealth and the security that it brings. Um, another group would be the, the uh, bondage to people, needing approval or glory or respect or status, right? All of these things that um, become sin when we, when we obey those things, we give in to those uh, impulses, those demands to find significance and meaning and worth for our life through those things and not from God, right? But instead, he says, we are to be slaves to obedience. Uh, and it's interesting that he uses the word slave to obedience and not slave to God. He says you can be a slave to sin, you can be slaves to obedience. Why does he say that? Well, I think simply this, because the people who were already slaves to the law thought they were slaves to God, right? And he wants to distinguish and separate uh, obedience to God versus keeping the law. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, hey, wait a minute. All right, I'm not stupid here. You know, uh, this looks just like keeping the law. I mean, really, you're telling me I just got to keep the rules and I got to be obedient to God. Okay, isn't that keeping the law, Right? It sounds the same. It's like a word trick, you know. It's kind of like this, like a, a parent tells their child, son, you know, mom, mom says to her son, son, you can do anything you want. Whatever you want to do, you can just do whatever you want. So the kid goes, I can do anything? She goes, you can do anything you want. So he gets really excited. and He has outdoors, and he looks for the biggest, most gigantic mud pit he can find. And he finds this great mud pit, just slimy, gooey mud. And he jumps in head first, and he just wallows in the mud and plays in the mud and squishes in the mud until he's just covered head to toe in mud. And he's just having a blast in the mud, right? He runs home, uh, starts running through the house, and just gets mud everywhere. Finally, mom, you know, comes across muddy footprints and muddy handprints on the wall and starts chasing the trail. And she sees her son just covered head to toe in mud. So she grabs him by the hair, <laughs> drags him outside, hoses him off, drags him back inside, strips off his clothes, throws him in the, in the bathtub, and with a stiff brush just scrubs the skin off of him. You know, just, just scrubs. And then she spanks him and puts him to bed without his supper and says, you're grounded for a month. And the boy just looks confused and heartbroken and crushed. And she sa- he says, well, you told me I could do whatever I wanted. She said, well, yeah, I didn't think you were stupid enough to do something stupid, right? Well, you know, sometimes we can kind of feel like that's what God's doing does. Like, we said I could do whatever I want, and now I'm in trouble for it, right? I don't get it. I feel tricked and trapped, right? Is there a difference between law and obedience, right? Is there a difference? Yes, there is. There is a huge world of difference. And Paul wants us to know that being uh, walking the path of obedience is nothing like following the law. Uh, we'll look a little bit more at this next week, but here, here's a couple uh, of, of the differences. Um, the law is essentially an impersonal moral code, a standard of right and wrong that often is outwardly behavior-focused, right? And because of that, because that's the nature of law... Uh, it tends to be something that we 
we, we do for appearance sake, right? Uh, we do outwardly what, what people can see and behold to show that we're in compliance with the, with the, um, the code. The Pharisees had got, were brilliant at this, right? The, the Pharisees knew how to play this game all too well. And they had got very good at looking good on the outside, uh, doing everything outwardly to impress people and to make it look like they were good and righteous people. But Jesus said, your hearts are wicked. They are black. You are whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside but dead on the inside. Right? And that's, the, that's what law produces. A law code always focuses on, on the external, on how I appear, and on uh, outward external conformity to the standard. But obedience is different. And notice what he says in, in verse 17. He says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, where does obedience take place? He says, you have become obedient from the heart. Okay, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, to the doctrine to which you were brought. Uh, the difference between law and obedience is this. Obedience is something that has everything to do with intent and motive and attitude. Law has everything to do with outward appearances, regardless of the intent of the heart. So the truth is, a person can keep the law outwardly perfectly, but with the worst intentions and motives. And that's one of the problems with people in the world who think they're good people. They say, you know, I keep the law. I, you know, I don't, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't go with you know, girls. I'm a good person. But if you look at the intent and motives of their heart, why do they do that? Do they do it out of love and generosity? Or do they do it uh, for themselves? Right? Uh, obedience means following the teachings from the heart. And it's interesting here, when he talks about teachings, what is he talking about? Well, he's probably not talking so much about the Old Testament, although... Uh, the basis and foundation of the gospel is the Old Testament. Jesus said that everything in the Old Testament points to him. But when he talks about the teachings, the form or the content of the teachings, he means by it the teachings of the gospel. He's talking here about what God has done uh, for us through the cross that gives us life eternal. And he says we need to uh, obey at the deepest level uh, God's word, right? The the gospel. Uh, what does it look like? Well, we all know we all know in Thailand. Here's a, here's an example of a comparison of this. We all know in Thailand that there's a helmet law, right? And if you're on a motorbike, you're supposed to wear a helmet. And I love driving around because you have like a couple of different classes of people. You have some people who actually wear the helmet, right? But never actually strap it. Right? It's it's on. Right, but it's just kind of hanging on there, and the, the slightest wind would knock it off. Right? Uh, then there's another group of people who actually have the helmet with them in their little basket. Right? And uh, they come around the corner, they see the police guys up there, and they're 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 they're, they're genius, you know, grabbing the helmet, putting it on, driving all at the same time, so that uh, you know when when the police guys come, eh, got the helmet, got the helmet. Right? Now, why did those people? keep the law. And they are definitely law keepers, right? Why do they keep the law? Well, simply, they don't want to get busted. They don't want to get caught. Uh, 
And that's what the law is about. The law is about not getting in trouble, not breaking the law and getting caught, not incurring guilt and wrath and judgment. And so they've learned how to play the game to not get caught. Now there's another group of people who actually wear the helmet all the time and actually buckle it. And chances are a lot of these people do so because they actually they actually understand that the helmet actually does something besides mess up your hair, right? Which is why a lot of people don't wear it, right? It messes up the hair. They know that actually if, if you're ever to get into a wreck and you had bad karma on a certain day, um, that the helmet helps protect from bad karma. And uh, if you hit the pavement, uh, it protects you, right? And they probably have driven by enough accidents and seen things they didn't really want to see, and they go, you know, I don't want that to be me. So I'm going to wear the helmet so that if I get in an accident, I'm going to be protected, right? Now, this is obedience at a, at a higher level because it sees that there is some reason for law, right? But it still is not exactly obedience like, G, like Paul is talking about here. Because its true intent and its true motive is still very much self-motivated. They're doing it to protect themselves. They're not doing it for anybody else. They're not doing it to anybody else's benefit. So in that sense, it's actually not obedience either. It's still just complying. It's doing something to protect myself. It's not obedience. Because obedience requires an outside party. Obedience means following somebody else's will. Right? Not just doing it for my own sake or benefit. So here's what, here's a third group, another group of people. Uh, we'll call it, we'll call it a high school student who diligently wears their helmet, right? Uh, and they understand that it's the law. They understand that they could, they could get a fine. They understand that if they got in a wreck, they could get hurt. Uh, but that's not why they wear it. They wear it because their dad said to them, sweetie, I love you, and it would just kill me. It would tear my heart out if you ever got in an accident, and because you weren't wearing your helmet, you were seriously injured or killed. It would, it would tear me up inside. So I'm asking you for me. If you love me, please wear your helmet, right? Because I couldn't see, I couldn't, I couldn't think of the thought of losing you. So this student loves their parents, loves their mom and their dad, and they, they don't want to bring that kind of pain into the life of their parents. So they wear the helmet because they love their parents. And they protect their life not just for their own sake, but they protect their life for, those, for the benefit of those who love them. Right? That is obedience, right? That is obedience. Because now I'm doing it not just conformity, not just complying to a standard, but I want to do the will of somebody else for their benefit, and mine, but ultimately for their benefit, right? That's obedience. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you have obeyed from the heart the teachings given to you. What are those teachings? Well, it's interesting. uh, Throughout Romans, uh, Paul's made it very clear, and he has emphasized overboard what God has done for us. Okay? That's the gospel. The teachings of the gospel are overwhelmingly the work that God has done to give us his grace, his salvation. Right? And notice even in this pa- passage, the emphasis is not on what you do, but it's on what God does. 
Okay? In this whole passage, there's only one word of instruction. There's only one actual command given. Right? But there's a number of phrases explaining what God has done. And all of them are put in a passive verb. And a passive verb simply means something that's done to you. So active means I kicked the ball. Passive means I got kicked. <laughs> okay? uh, one you do, one gets done to you. And in this passage, there are several passive verbs. Let me highlight them. He says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're commended. Verse 18, You have been, passive, set free from sin. You have been. You didn't set yourself free from sin. You have been set free by who? God, through the power of the cross, through the gospel. You have been set free. And you have been enslaved to righteousness. Again, passive verb. Did you enslave yourself? No. You have been made a slave by the gospel, by God, to righteousness. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin, not that you set yourself free, you have been, it's something God did, and have become slaves of God, again, something God did, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. Uh, Here's the whole deal. Grace means God loved you so much. He has done all this for you. He's made salvation possible for you. He has purchased your life. He has broken the power of sin. He has broken its, uh, the bondage you had to sin. He has set you free. He has now made you a slave of righteousness. Right? God did all that. And all he asks of you is that you obey him. So the question is not, God, what do I have to do? The question is, God, what can I do to please you? What can I do to show my love and gratitude and affection for what you have done for me? That is obedience. Uh, So obedience is about a new motivation of the heart, right? It's what we want to do to please and honor God in light of what he has done for us. Uh, lastly, in his discussion about this, he says, okay, all that aside, last thing you got to know is that there are results. Okay, You serve different masters, and different masters pay you or treat you in different ways. And, of course, in their world where there were masters and slaves, this would have made perfect sense to them. There were good masters and there were bad masters. Some good masters would actually give property, oftentimes chunks of their estate, to a good slave. So he says, okay, the bottom line is, what do you get out of the deal? Which master is going to take the best care of you? And he contrasts it this way. Um, Verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at, the, at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? What fruit did you get from sin? For the end of those things is death. Real quick, here's the fruit of, of sin. First of all, it's, it's lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Right? When you start walking down the path of sin, it leads to more sin. 
If you if you commit one small sin, it leads to bigger sins, right? Uh, not always, but that's the general pattern and trend. It's like you know the guy was talking to the Baptist preacher about um, premarital sex, and they were having this debate about why it was wrong. And and he asked the, the the Baptist preacher, "Well, what are you afraid of about premarital sex?" He says, "Well, you know, it could lead to dancing." <laughs> My futile attempted at humor. Sin, lawlessness, leads to more lawlessness. Right? Second, sin left us free from righteousness. The truth is that when you walk in obedience to sin, you can't do good. Now, of course, sinful people do good things, right? But it cannot be the bulk of their life. Because even, as I said, even in their goodness, there's selfishness. There are impure motives. There's an agenda, right? There's always an agenda, right? Third, he says no lasting fruit comes out of it. Uh, what, what good thing comes out of sin, right? What good thing comes out of sin? What good thing long-term comes out of anything evil and sinful? Nothing. Uh, th- fourth, uh, what it produces is shame, right? He says you look back now... And shame of those things, right? None of us wants our sins. You know, everybody's fear is when we get to heaven, there's going to be a big screen TV. And God, you know, we're going to have popcorn movie night. And, you know, they're going to show every sin you did, right? It's like, no, because there's shame. We're ashamed of those things, okay? They, they brought to us shame. Lastly, they ultimately bring death. It ultimately brings death. Um, and not just physical death. And it's important to understand that when, Jesus, when Paul says here, the wages of sin is death, that's true for a Christian as much as it is for a non-Christian. The wages of sin is death, period. doesn't matter who commits the sin. The, the cost, the wages, the benefit of sin is death. Right? Well, you say, well, does that mean I lose my salvation? No. Uh, You've got to understand what death is. Now, of course, sinfulness, if you walk fully down the path of sin, it does bring ultimate spiritual death and separation from God. But death is, death is a lot of things. And to compare death with life, what, what's living? Well, li- living is things that grow. Life means something is strong and reproducing and regenerating, and it has fruit, and it expands, and it's alive. Death is the opposite of all that. It diminishes. It withers. It deteriorates. It grows weaker. It decays. It becomes, in the end, lifeless and nothing. Right? When you sin, it brings death to you, to that part of your life, and it brings death to relationship. Right? It brings decay and weakness and sickness. Uh, it brings no growth and no fruit to that part of your life where you are sinning. And that's always true. Uh, it, it diminishes and withers everything it touches. Uh, and, and it affects your character, and it affects your relationships. It's interesting, a, a book, um, which I haven't read yet, I, I want to, it's called The Demise of Guys, Why Boys Struggle and What We Can Do About It. And he, the, the author uh, looks at um, teenage and college-age students and their addiction to pornography and video games. And this is some of her conclusion. She says... Um, not just watching porn, but playing video games, is leaving men in the dust socially. 
unable to relate to women, and unable to function in society. And she's got all kinds of amazing research about this. I don't have time to go into. She said that we found that guys are failing in school and with women and becoming socially isolated because of their addiction to games and to porn. Right? It brings death. Okay? Ironically, the guy's attraction to girls through pornography makes them incapable of relationships with girls. Right? It brings death. True of every, every part of life. Uh, sin brings death. But, right, the free gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life. What are the benefits? What is the produce of obedience? Uh, real quickly, uh, the fruit that leads to sanctification. Okay? Uh, what, is san- what does he mean by sanctification? Well, it simply means this. It means to be fit and worthy as a vessel for God. To be fit and worthy as a vessel for God. The temple was holy, meaning it was a place that was fit for the presence and glory of God to dwell. Right? Obedience changes your character and makes you a fit place for God's presence and glory to dwell. Right? So one of the fruit or products of our obedience is that we grow in the capacity to house the person and the glory of God. Right? That's pretty cool. Right? You become a temple fit to, uh, as, a, as an abode for his presence and as a vessel for worship to him. How does that happen? Well, it says that we become obedient to righteousness. Well, righteousness, mean, righteousness simply means knowing the right thing to do. Okay, always knowing the right thing to do. The law could never do that. Uh, only righteousness, the sense of obedience, gives us a sense of what's the right thing to do in every situation. Jesus always knew the right thing to do. And interestingly, sometimes the right thing to do contradicted the law, right? Uh, Jesus was not always a law keeper. He was always obedient, right? And it produced in him righteous conduct. Righteous conduct has to do with our behavior, what we do. When we walk in obedience, we start doing continually the right things. As we start doing more and more of the right things, we understand more what the right thing is. As we do that, it changes our character and makes us a fit vessel for God's glory. See, righteousness, it says, produces sanctification. Our right behavior makes, changes our character and makes us more like God. And in order to be fit, in order to be a holy vessel, we need to be corresponding more and more to the character and likeness of God's being. Okay, that's the fruit of obedience. And lastly, he says it produces in us the free gift of eternal life. Right? Uh, it is through obedience, through righteousness, through sanctification, through walking in God's presence that we become possessors of eternal life. Not just in the future, but even now, as God fills us, we become possessors of eternal relationship with Him. Right. One last story. Um, you know, grace must produce in our life an attitude of obedience. Right? If we are not growing more and more obedient, we do not understand grace. And uh, we don't get to understand grace by... By, by, by keeping the law. We, we understand grace by submitting ourselves to the teachings of the gospel. 
by understanding more clearly and fully what God has done for us, not what we need to do for Him. But grace will produce in us a heart that wants to obey God because we love Him and we long to please Him and do what honors Him. Grace produces obedience. There's no other way. Right? It's like this. Uh, this past week I've been doing some kind of house construction projects and uh, building stuff. And Emma, my little eight-year-old granddaughter, has been helping me. And she loves to help me. She thinks it's the greatest thing ever. And uh, yesterday, as I was cleaning up and putting stuff away, she said, Papa, how old do I have to be before I can get my own drill? <laughs> can, I, can I get one when I'm 10? Right? Uh, I'm thinking, <laughs> what are you going to do with a drill? Right? Well, why does she want a drill? Well, because she wants to work with me, right? She, she wants to be a part of what I am doing. And if I'm building stuff, she wants to be a significant part of what I'm doing. And if she has a drill, man, she can drill stuff. And so she can help, right? Uh, you see, it's not a chore for her. It's not a duty for her. It is a longing to participate with what I'm doing, right? Well, why does she want to be with me and do what I do? Because she, she loves me, right? Because I am special to her because we have a relationship, that's how it is with us and God, right? It's not, God, what do I have to do? God, what do I have to do to make you happy? You know, I guess I have to go to church. I guess I have to read my Bible. I guess I have to do all this stuff. Okay, I'll do it, right? That's not obedience, right? That is not obedience. And that does not come from grace. That comes from law. Obedience says, God, I love you. And I am so grateful for what you've done in my life. God, how can I partner with you? How can I work with you? What job do you have for me to do? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.